grace to you and peace from the Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Be prepared. That's the motto, of course, of the Boy Scouts of America. But I dare say that that phrase, be prepared, is relevant not just for Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, but for every one of us in various aspects of our lives. It's important that we're prepared for things, whether it be at work, if you have to make a presentation for your job, you need to get ready for that, you need to prepare for that. Or if you're a student in school, you know how important it is to prepare for and a final exam or a, a term paper that you have to present. Or maybe you're getting ready to have house guests come and stay at your house. You know that that takes a little preparation too. Or maybe you're getting ready to go on a vacation. And being prepared for that is important as well. Well, the phrase be prepared actually is in our text for this morning from St. Peter's first letter from chapter 3. And the opening verse I'm, I'm using is kind of a focus verse for our thoughts today. I'd like you to read this verse along with me, please, out loud. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have, Peter says. Do this with gentleness and respect. Kind of interesting that that's coming from Peter, because as you recall, Peter had not always been prepared to speak up and give a reason for his faith. Remember the night when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken off to the house of Caiaphas and Peter stays out in the courtyard warming himself by the fire and three times different people say hey weren't you with him and three times of course he said no I don't even know the man and then the rooster crowed Peter wasn't ready he wasn't prepared to speak up for his faith in the uh, first reading that we heard a moment ago from Acts chapter 17 we heard about another man who was prepared to declare his faith and give the reason for his hope in Christ. That, of course, was St. Paul. That first reading took place in the city of Athens, Greece. And there Paul goes up on what's called the Areopagus or Mars Hill in English. This is what Mars Hill looks like today. That photo is taken from the, the Acropolis where the Parthenon stands looking to the northwest. Paul went up on Mars Hill and engaged in conversation with the, the philosophers of the day <clears throat> who loved to do nothing better than discuss the latest insights and thoughts and ideas. And as he's up on Mars Hill, he sees statues and idols dedicated to various gods and goddesses. And then he notices one particular altar with an inscription that said, To an unknown God. And Paul basically says, let me tell you about that God you don't know about. And he tells about the true God that created the world, the God that is the Savior of the world, that God that demonstrated his love by raising Jesus from the dead. And they got curious then. Paul was prepared to give the reason for his hope. And it seems that uh, Peter probably 
picked up a lot of that influence from St. Paul. Peter hung around Paul quite a bit. And over the course of time, Peter matured and came to be more confident in his own faith and bold in his witness. Thirty years later, Peter is now writing his first letter. He's writing it to Christians who are facing persecution under the Roman Empire. And he writes with confidence. And he says to his readers, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But then he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. That's important in our witness, isn't it? That we not go into conversations with people on faith matters like a bull in a china shop. But interesting that Peter's the one that says do this with gentleness and respect. He wasn't always very gentle or respectful. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's the one who took the sword and cut off a soldier's ear. That's how he was defending the faith. But 30 years later, he's a more mature follower of Jesus. And he reminds us that we need to use gentleness and respect in our conversations with people. We don't have to be aggressive and pushy. It's not like we're going to go face to face with somebody and argue our way, our way into their heart. That usually doesn't work. My exhortation is to do it in the mindset of, of you're walking down a country road with a person by your side that you're trying to lead to Christ. It's like you're walking down this road and you see off to this side of the road something interesting. You say, hey, did you notice that over there? And then you continue walking and, and you say, hey, did you notice that on that side of the road? The conversation might go something like this. Hey, have you ever considered this about the claim of Christianity? Have you ever thought about this notion about Jesus? And as you do this kind of conversation, you're inviting the person to consider the claims of Christ and the New Testament. It's a gentle and respectful way of sharing your faith. Well, our theme today is be prepared to give an answer. Be prepared to give an answer for your Christian hope. So, so let me ask you this question. What is the reason for your hope? If you're going to try and explain it to someone, what would you say? What is the reason for your hope as a Christian? Well, that's what St. Peter helps us with in the latter part of the text this morning, that epistle lesson from 1 Peter 3. And I want us to look at this a little more closely. Uh, the words aren't going to come up uh, as easily on the screen throughout the sermon, so I invite you to take out the pew rack Bible and uh, turn to this passage, 1 Peter 3. It's page 1890, 1890, if you care to follow along in the pew rack Bible. It's 1 Peter 3. We're going to start at verse 18. Because as we look at this section, Peter gives us a variety of reasons for our Christian hope. He gives us some content to have on our lips when we have an opportunity to share our faith with someone else. So if you're looking at 1 Peter 3, we're going to start at verse 18 to see some of the insights that Peter has to share with us as we prepare to give the reason for our hope in Christ. Starting at verse 18, it says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
he was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. All right, we're going to go through this section a little bit at a time. But again, what's the question? What is the reason for your hope? What is the reason for your hope as a Christian? The first point Peter makes here in the opening verse is Jesus Christ willingly died in your place. That's the starting point of our Christian hope. Jesus died once, died for sins once for all, Peter said, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Just consider what it is Jesus did at the cross. Holy, innocent, righteous Jesus, who is God himself, came into this world, took on a human body like us so that he would suffer and die like we would. He who was innocent took on himself all of the guilt and shame of our wrongs, our sins, and he was punished by the Father in our place. In doing that, in dying on the cross, he paid the full penalty for all sin. There is no more punishment to be paid out for those who trust in him as their Savior. And through faith in him, we receive forgiveness of our sins. Peter tells us that Jesus died and that he was buried. But of course, the story does not end there. We read on with the next section of, of the letter. He says, He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What's that all about? It's talking about the fact that sometime between the time Jesus was buried in the tomb and when he came out of the grave on Easter morning, sometime in between his burial and his resurrection, Jesus came back to life and descended into hell. Now, why did he go into hell? To suffer more? No. No. He went there to proclaim victory over Satan and all that is evil. In the text it says he went there to preach to the spirits in prison. The word preached means to proclaim victory. It's the same word used when a victorious army returns from battle victoriously and marches and parades through the streets of the city saying, we won. Proclaiming the victory. And that's what Jesus did by descending into hell. We proclaimed that a few moments ago in the Apostles' Creed. This is the passage in the New Testament that teaches about the descent into hell. And he said to Satan, I beat you. I won. And you see, because Jesus won, because he has the victory, we have the victory too. Sin, death, and hell have no more power over us through faith in Jesus Christ. Interesting that in this section, Peter refers to the story of Noah. Isn't it kind of interesting? 
Noah and the great flood. Now, as a side note, I think it's significant that he would refer to that story as a factual story. We can appreciate the fact that Peter affirms the truth of this Old Testament event, Noah and the great flood that covered the entire earth, and how God saved Noah and his family. It points to the the truthfulness and the veracity of the Scriptures as God's inspired and inerrant word, a word that we can fully rely on. Jesus himself relied on the Old Testament and, and affirmed its truth, and here Peter does the same thing. Of course, in that story of Noah, we remember that God had instructed Noah to build an ark, a floating vessel. And Peter tells us that in it, that is in that ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. Those eight people were saved through water, Peter says. And then notice what Peter does next. He draws a connection between that story and baptism. He says it this way. In it, that is in the ark, a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice the emphasis he puts on baptism here. That baptism, he says, now saves you also. That the waters of the Noah story point forward to the waters of baptism, which in an even more wondrous way bring about salvation, salvation of our soul. Now we might want to ask the question, how does baptism save? I mean, I look at baptism, it seems pretty simple. It's just water, isn't it? Well, good Dr. Martin Luther helped us understand that better, didn't he, in his catechism when he said, baptism is not simple water only, but it is the water included in God's command, namely the command to go and baptize, and combined with God's word. Ah, water combined with God's word makes it a saving water, a water that actually does something powerful on the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, friends, we need to understand that a part of our witness to others can include a testimony about the meaning of our baptism, that in our baptism, God the Holy Spirit was at work. And in baptism, the Holy Spirit plants the gift of faith in the heart of the recipient of baptism. In baptism, the Holy Spirit washes away sin. In baptism, the Holy Spirit connects this person into the family of God, adopting this person as a child of the Heavenly Father. Unlike what is sometimes taught in some churches and groups that baptism is merely a symbolic act, the Bible teaches clearly that baptism has a powerful, life-changing ability because the Spirit uses the water with the Word to transform a person's heart from the inside out and take them from being an unbeliever to a believer in Christ. So baptism is significant because it connects us to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says in the text in verse 21. It, namely baptism, saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It saves us because it connects us to the cross 
and the empty tomb. This is what St. Paul was uh, uh, writing about in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 6, he said, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Our baptism is significant because it connects us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection power, you see, is what is active in baptism. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise an unbeliever to be a believer in baptism. And so, friends, being prepared to to give an answer concerning the uh, reason for our hope includes referring to our baptism. That's what it includes. Why? Because it connects us to Jesus' resurrection. Now, this brings us to really the central reason for our hope. And if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, this next section I, I want you to take hold of most importantly. For you see, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the central reason that we have any hope at all. In fact, if Jesus Christ's bones are still lying in a grave in Jerusalem somewhere, we have no hope. And what we're doing here is a waste of time. Worshiping God, praying to Him, reading the Bible, all of that is useless if Jesus' body is still lying somewhere underground on earth. This is what St. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But... Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, without the resurrection of Jesus, we indeed would have no hope. But because he is truly alive, we shall live also. We too shall be raised from the dead on the last day. Death has indeed been defeated, and eternal life is guaranteed to all who believe him. Now, as we think about this uh, resurrection of the dead, we really need to go back to the example of the apostles, the first believers in Jesus. Think about those men. They certainly based their hope on Jesus' resurrection, for they were eyewitnesses of all of these things. They saw Jesus put to death. They knew he had been dead and buried. And after the third day, they saw him alive. Not just once, but for 40 days he showed himself alive. They were eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And all of them, except John, were executed for their proclamation of the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And even John had been exiled to the island of Patmos because of his profession of faith. They all 
put their lives on the line for the message of the resurrection. Now, we need to keep this in mind. These first apostles, these eyewitnesses of the resurrection were accused of stealing the body of Jesus and then making up a story, a lie, that he had risen from the dead. That's what they were accused of. All right, so let's just imagine that for just a moment. Let's assume that's what happened. The disciples stole the body of Jesus, which in itself would be virtually impossible to do with a Roman guard there who are going to guard it with all their life. But nevertheless, let's assume they stole the body somehow and they made up this whole lie, this story that Jesus had risen from the dead. Let's imagine that that's what actually happened. The moment that the authorities come to these disciples and say, renounce this story of the resurrection or we're going to cut off your heads, every one of them at that moment would have said, oh, we made it up. It was a lie. We just made it up. We, we don't want to die. Don't cut our heads off. Not one of them did that. Why? Because it wasn't a lie. Because the truth was Jesus had truly risen from the dead and they were willing to die for that message. You see, the fact is no one willingly dies for what they know is a lie. Nobody does that. Sometimes the argument is made today that, well, there are all kinds of religious fanatics today who die for a religious cause. Isn't that the same thing? And we know about Suicide bombers dying for religious reasons. Isn't that the same thing? No, it's not. And here's why. Those people are dying for something that they believe is true. But nobody willingly dies for something they know is a lie. And so this accusation that the disciples made this up is absolutely false. They were willing to die for their message that Jesus had risen from the dead. You see, myths do not make martyrs. And the fact is, the apostles saw Jesus alive and wrote about it as eyewitnesses. And we have their testimony today. Jesus truly has risen from the dead, friends, and that is the source, the main source of our hope. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection as well. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. And so the central reason for our hope is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Peter goes on in verse 22 with another point. He says, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven. He refers to Jesus who has gone into heaven. Jesus showed himself alive for 40 days to a variety of people. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. He physically returned to the place from which he had gone. You know, this Thursday, May 25th, is the 40th day of Easter. We call it Ascension Day. It's the day when Jesus, after giving final instructions to his disciples, ascended up into heaven, the place from which he had come, and he went there, among other reasons, to prepare a place 
for everyone who places their trust in Him as their Savior. And friends, that gives you and me another reason for our hope, knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ has gone into heaven to get a place ready for you and me. Talk about being prepared. He's preparing a room, a mansion, for each of us who trust in Him. And we look forward to the day when we enter into His glory. So His ascension is another part of the reason for our hope. And then the final part of our text is in the last part of verse 22. He refers to Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean, the right hand of the Father? Well, in any monarchy, the person at the right hand of the king was a person with great power and authority next to the king. It's a way of saying Jesus sits in the position of power and authority ruling the universe. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords ruling over all things. And from there, one day, he will return, he will raise us back to life and take us home. Now you may have noticed that these various phrases that we came across in this reading from 1 Peter were later used in the penning of the Apostles' Creed. Much of the content of our statement of belief known as the Apostles' Creed comes from these words. And I think that raises another helpful point that the Apostles' Creed itself can serve as a helpful witnessing tool when we have an opportunity to share about our faith. We can use it as kind of an outline. You know, the Apostles' Creed talks about God the Father, the Creator, Jesus the Savior, and then the Holy Spirit, the Sanctifier. And if you just focus on the second portion that talks about Jesus, you have a powerful way of witnessing to someone about your Savior. That second article of the Creed is kind of divided into two parts and the the first part talks about Jesus humiliation he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified died and was buried it's like steps down in his humiliation he went through all of that for us and then the second part has to do with his exaltation. And the first step up in his exaltation is that he descended into hell, again, to proclaim victory over Satan. He descended into hell. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father and from there will come to judge the living and the dead. It serves as an outline for us to be able to share the reason for the hope we have as followers of Jesus. So friends, I I want to exhort you with Peter's exhortation to be prepared. Be prepared at any time to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So let me ask you, are you prepared? May God the Holy Spirit empower each and every one of us to share the simple words of gospel with all who will listen. Amen. And may the peace of God which passes human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.